so I am continuing a teaching series. We've st- started a few weeks ago now looking at God. Who is God? Um, lots of people in the world say they believe in God, or some people say that they're open to God. Um, but we want to learn more about the character of God. What is God actually like? It's one thing to deduce from science that there may well possibly be a God who created things. It's quite another thing to then say this God is loving or gracious or forgiving or merciful, those kind of things. And to do that, we need God to speak to us. We need God to give us revelation. Rather like Harry Potter trying to learn about J.K. Rowling, he cannot do so unless she reveals herself to him. Or Hamlet learning about Shakespeare. Characters within the story cannot know about the author unless the author reveals himself to them. Now, as Christians, we believe that God has done that uh, in this book and primarily, uh, and not exclusively, but almost chiefly, in Jesus, his son, revealed who God is and what God's like to us. So we've been looking at that. Uh, We're going through a book called Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 or so years before Jesus and he lived in this part of the world over here and that's where a lot of the story of the Bible takes place. That's where we're going to be this morning as well. Uh, I'm going to jump straight in and start reading for us. We're in Isaiah chapter 44. Um, It's a big book. There might be some strange concepts and ideas in the reading I'm going to share today. Don't worry, we'll hopefully explain them as we go and and have a lot of fun together along the way. Um, Let me read this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So we've looked at this series about how God is, reveals himself as a God of peace, the God who vindicates last week, um, the God who's incomparable and indescribable. And today we're looking at the fact that God reveals himself as the real God, the real God. And that's a controversial statement. God isn't very politically correct. He's, he's not too worried about the rationalistic Western world we live in. He says, I am the real God. God. And that's what we're looking at today. How can God make that claim? And in the reading that we just looked at together, God essentially says that he is uh, a rock that we can build on and he's a rescuer that we can bet on. And actually, the fabric of our lives is essentially we do that. We, We build on things and we bet on things. The Bible's word for that is we worship. But that's essentially the concept behind it. We're building on this and we're betting on that. Uh, a friend I was talking to the other day um, moved from Hungary several years ago with his family to build a life in the UK. And he did so betting on the UK economy and his own ability to get a job and to work hard. And he's done very well. Uh, and they've got established as a family and a, a house and things. And he was talking to me the other day just saying, I built this and I'm betting on that and it's going well, but still I wrestle. Is this enough? Am I doing the right thing? Am I building wisely, if you like? And all of us are given things to build with in our lives. Um, Stuff like uh, the country that we come from, the time in history that we're born, our family background, that's stuff that we build with. And we go, okay, I'm going to take the stuff of who I am and the world I live in, I'm going to build a life for myself. And we we live our lives betting on things as well, like choosing the decisions that we make, uh, the education that we have, the talents that we're given with, those kind of things. We use those things to bet on things, to build on things. We might not use that language, but that's what we're doing. 
And this has a short-term effect and a long-term effect. And many people say, right, long-term, I want to get here. But what we often forget to then ask is, right, well, am I, gonna, am I building, am, am I betting on the day-to-day things wisely to achieve the overall thing that I've said I want to build with my life? God says that he's the true God, and that we can build on him and we can bet on him. So I don't know, how are you using the stuff of your life? to build your life. What are you building on? What are you betting on? Many of us say, well, I'm, I'm building on God. I'm betting on him. That's long term. That's, we're agreed. I'm signed up. I'm on that. You know, I, I agree with you. But the question we then have to ask is, okay, does my day-to-day existence reflect the long-term goal and aim of my life? I want to build on God. I want to bet on God. Am I living appropriately to that end as well? Now, I've heard it said before, and I, and I think it's right, that there are essentially the two biggest decisions that you'll ever make in your life are this. Number one, who you're going to marry, and number, if you're going to marry. And number two, which God are you going to worship? Those are the two biggest decisions of our lives. Who am I going to marry, and if I'm going to marry, and who am I going to worship? Now, some of you might say, well, I don't worship a God. So, okay, tick, done that one. Well, still, you still have to answer that question. Although you might not worship a, a God, we still build and bet on an idea or concept or a, a thing that society or a family have told us, this is what you're to do with your life. And this matters because what you value most, you get most of. This matters because what you honor most, you get most of. You get the fruit of the foundation that you build on or that you bet on. And there are things that we can spend our lives on that degrade us and that cause our souls to shrivel and for us to feel less expansively human than other things, right? We know that. We see that with, uh, perhaps you see it obviously with addictions and people who give themselves to destructive things. It it degrades their humanity somehow. it's, It's tragic. But that's true of everything that we do in our lives. It affects us. And this was made clear to me that um, the other week, I spilt something on the carpet at home, and I got the carpet cleaner out. I know, I know. I got the carpet cleaner out, sprayed it on the floor, and it's this kind of white foam substance, and was going around the floor spraying all of the kind of mess that I'd made and scrubbing into the carpet. I turned around to see Zach, my 18-month-old, on the carpet on his hands and knees, licking the floor where I'd sprayed it, <laughs> licking the carpet cleaner. And so I kind of questioned the wisdom of what he was doing and said, stand up, son, you are not a cat. You are a human being. Act like a man. Come on. There are things that we can do with our lives that make us less than the human that we're meant to be or the, the thing that God's designed for us and given for us to do. Just as licking a carpet is inappropriate behavior because it degrades our humanity. That's what I'm getting at behind that. So let's look at uh, Isaiah 44 together. Uh, To make it nice and memorable and easy for us, I've got an acronym. We all like acronyms. The first two things that we see in Isaiah 44 in that reading is that God, as revealed in the Scripture, is reliable and He's enduring. You can build on Him. Okay, so the first lesson of today, though, that I want to start with is this. The Bible says God is reliable and enduring, that we can build our lives on Him. Now, put your hand up if you... And if you're not a believer, you can play this game as well. Put your hand up if you've ever doubted that God is, in fact, reliable and enduring and trustworthy. Put your hand up. Okay, keep your hand high in the air. Look around. Today we have learned a very valuable lesson. That lesson is this. You are not alone. 
all of us doubt, all of us ask questions of God's nature and question his reliability and enduring nature in life. I mean, that's a valuable lesson right there. I could sit back down, get John up and say, all right, let's worship. There we go. We've learned something very important today. You're not alone. The question that we have to ask is, what do you do with those doubts about God's character and God's nature? Well, in the Bible, you see that God's people lived in a world surrounded by other nations who had their own gods. And the thing about other nations and other gods was that you could see them. They had statues that you could bow down to. You could pick up this idol, put it down and say, this is Asherah or Baal. I'm going to worship him. He's going to provide or she's going to provide this for me. It was physical. There was a, I'm going to trust this. But for God's people, he said, don't make any images of me. Just trust me. Trust my nature. Trust my goodness. And, and God's people, time and time again in the Bible, went off track and off path. In fact, one philosopher has said that the, the big idea of the whole Bible is don't worship any other gods. God despises idols because uh, he knows what they do to us. And as Christians we, some, uh, Christians, we sometimes need to be honest with one another and say, well, the reason I don't uh, give, the reason I'm not as generous as I'd like to be with my money, the reason I don't serve the poor, or the reason I often lie to get out of a situation, the reason I find it so hard to really wait for a relationship that I know God wants for me, the reason I find it so hard to do those things, or the reason I find it hard to forgive someone, or to pray, or to listen to people's advice, because I doubt, I struggle with the, these things. And if you ever feel like that, you're part of a, a good group of people. All of us wrestle and have questions of our own. And in the ancient world, it was, uh, as I said, these, these other gods, Asherah, Baal, Artemis, uh, Epaphrodite, uh, and those things, they, they, re- they were symbols and represented other things. Things like um, agriculture or f- fertility or war, power, essentially money, sex, and power. That's what people worship then. That's what people worship now. That's what we live for. That's what we look to build on. I mean, we don't bow to Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, but we still, many of us, build our lives, making all kinds of sacrifices to get beauty because we want that. Money, sex, and power. In fact, one writer says this, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. The trouble is that those things aren't reliable. They're not enduring. They're not secure. And when people do get the thing that they prize most, it turns them into mini gangsters and drug lords who then get really paranoid and have to protect things and become really mean-spirited and stingy because I've got what I'm after and now I have to protect it because that's my God. So Isaiah kind of talks, is talking into that setting and those kinds of people. And this is what he says in Isaiah 44. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. What's he saying here? He's saying that the makers of idols are nothing. Idols themselves are nothing. Worshipping them is nothing. It's like building on clouds. It's not building on solid ground. And, and that word profit, what does it profit? It's not profitable. It's reminiscent of what Jesus said uh, in, in the Gospels when he said, what does it profit a man 
What does it really gain a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So it's behind Isaiah. And there's this thing where he kind of says, gather around, let them all assemble and let them see what it is they worship. They should be terrified. They should be put to shame. He says, there will come a day for people like that. We call it the Simon Cowell moment. You know, like X Factor in the auditions. People who think that they are impressive and think that they can sing, stand on stage and are humiliated in front of the nation. We call it entertainment. And... uh, And Simon Cowell shoots them down to size. It's that moment that reality dawns in a very painful way. One day, Isaiah says, that's going to happen to everyone. Fake gods don't endure. And at the end, they'll be revealed as the deceptive and weak things that they are. They're not worth building on. The real God is reliable and enduring. And to help with that, I've um, came across this uh, video recently that I, I found very inspiring and helpful. It's two minutes long. We're going to have a look at that. It's a quote um, by a man called Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, who was a, a writer during the last century. Great name, Malcolm Muggeridge. And, uh, and this is a quote of his. We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen of England, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world. Most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown saying he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've seen a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I have seen America more wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island of the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin is a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America is haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluids that keeps her motorways roaring and the smog settling with painful memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victory of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. Behind the debris of the fallings of our solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists lies the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom mankind may still survive the person of Jesus Christ. The God of the Bible is an enduring, reliable God. History has borne witness to that. I know when I was first investigating the claims of Jesus There's a verse in the book of Acts that always stood out to me. When the early Christians were being mocked for their faith and they were being tried for uh, believing something that was illegal, it was getting the Jewish people into trouble, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, one man said, let them go, because if what they're doing is just of man, it'll fail. But if it's of God, who can stop them? And worse, he said, "We we may even find ourselves opposing God. All in one lifetime, all gone, apart from God. The reliable 
an enduring one. Build your life on him. Make daily decisions to build your life on him. With a small amount of faith or trust that you can muster, say, I'm going to make a decision to trust him. With the time allocation that I'm giving, I'm going to use it to build things that are important to him. I'm going to prioritize things that are priority to him and to his life in me. I'm going to build on them. Decide what you want your end goal to be and build appropriately. The daily decisions that we make, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, how involved we get in building God's people and serving in church. It's part of how we build. I know people have said to me, I, I just I don't feel connected to church life. I say, ah, what are you building? How are you, how are you building that? Are you part of a, a small group community? Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. Do you, do you come on Sundays and kind of build friendships with people? Oh, no, I find that hard. Oh, okay. Do you serve in some way? No, I can't. Okay, that's fine. Do you give? No, I don't give. Okay, what are you building on? Not that, it's not that we have to give ourselves to an organization, but it's what we do to build on things. The Bible says don't give up meeting together. We need that for one another. Jesus says where your treasure will be there, your heart will be also. That's how we build day by day, those kind of decisions. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Okay, so God is the real God that we, is reliable and enduring. But also as we're going to go on to see, he's our God who is alive and life-giving. You can bet on him. You can build on him and you can bet on him. Now imagine you were walking uh, on a journey somewhere and you came to a crossroads and you didn't know which way to go. There was lots of different paths. But fortunately for you, at the crossroads were all of the world's religious leaders and gods. All of the gods and religious ideas and all of the prophets who've ever lived, including Jesus. All of these. Who are you going to ask for advice? You're going to ask the one person that's actually alive. Jesus. The one who actually defeated death itself. I'm going to ask him for advice. All of the other world's religions are based around believing in, trusting in dead gods, dead religions. And Isaiah, in this next section that we're going to read, he goes on a bit of a rant about this that's very non-politically correct. And that's okay, because it's the Bible. The Bible can insult people and get away with it. I couldn't do it. I'd get nasty emails. But Isaiah can do it, so we're going to read that. You see, that is the key difference between God and all the other gods. The key difference between Jesus and all the other world's religions and leaders is that Jesus is alive. Okay. Isaiah says this. The ironsmith. So he starts painting this picture of how people make gods now. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and he works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Are you going to worship a God that, or are you going to worship something that saps your energy? Or are you going to worship someone who renews your strength, the Bible says? It's what Isaiah is starting to do, saying, isn't it silly? You worship something that you had to build, and, upon build, and in building it, you got tired. It's a strange God. Okay, let's carry on. The carpenter. So he's had to go ironsmiths. Now the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. 
He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes bread. Somebody baking bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it into an idol and falls down before it. Of course, of course. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And with the rest, he makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You're supposed to read that and go, Who would do that? Oh, I do. I pursue money, sex, and power. I, cre- I turn earthly things into heavenly things. I worship things that sap all of my strength and energy, but I devote my life to them. I bet on them. The difference between the creator God and created gods is seen here by contrast. In other things that we've looked at in previous weeks, it's seen through simile and metaphor, or, you know, like the mountains and eagles and these glorious images from creation. And now it's kind of, we're going to learn about God by looking at what he's not like. The creator God is different from created gods. Created gods need you in order to exist. The creator God does not. Whether you believe in God or not does not affect him one bit, in a sense. It doesn't affect his existence, whether or not he does. If someone says, I don't believe in God, I don't think he goes, I need you, please believe in me. Without you, I've got nothing to do. He doesn't. The creator God does not need us. Created gods are made by man. The creator God made man. That's the claim of the Bible. See, a lot of people would say our religion is made by man. Gods are just invented by man. And they are absolutely right. Except for one. The creator God. Created gods need rain to nourish them. They are trees and they're earthly. The creator God sends the rain. Created gods need houses to live in, shrines to sit up nice and cozy in the winter and keep warm. The creator God, the Bible says, not even the highest heaven can contain him. He doesn't need upgrading. You don't need to take him to the Apple store to get him fixed. When your contract runs out worshipping that God, you haven't got to get a new one that's slightly better, but well, it, looks, it looks different, but it does the same thing as the one before, but I convinced myself, it's better, it's better, it's better. I speak as an Apple addict. The key in this reading is this, that the created gods are dead. They don't have any life of their own, but the creator God is alive and living. He's a person to live with, to interact with, to get to know, to explore, to question, to doubt, to wrestle with can't do that with created gods they can't handle it if I can be a little bit bold in this next bit and say this Muslims often get very agitated and very angry when anyone does anything slightly blasphemous or irreverent towards Muhammad or their God why because he's not a real God he needs people to defend him Christians don't our God is fine on his own he exists he rules and reigns Other things, they might look impressive. They might have a big following, but they're dead. Like a sports car with no engine. Very impressive on the outside. I want to buy one. But no engine, no power to get it going. Now, Riley and I are planning on going to um, the Natural History Museum in London this summer. I'm very excited. He doesn't know what, but he's excited because it's the museum. And there are dinosaurs in it. 
And um, I showed him some photos of when I went to this museum before to help him imagine what it's going to be like. And, and he's been very excited about visiting this museum, talks about it a lot. Whenever he says, tell me a story, the story has to involve a museum. He's that excited. Anyway, he saw these pictures, and there was a photo of me standing next to an animatronic T-Rex, and his face changed. <laughs> and now, he doesn't want to go to the museum. He's very scared, because there are dinosaurs at this museum. So I had to sit him down and say, you silly boy. It's not real. There's no life. It might look real. It might look powerful. There is no life in this thing. We went to a dinosaur park the other day, and there was these animatronic dinosaurs, and he walks around like this. And I'm like, you fool! He's not real! He's dead! And many of us live worshipping gods that are dead. They look impressive. They look like they'll, they, we can bet on them, that we can build on them, but they're dead. Obviously, I didn't call my son a fool. Maybe. If you're going to bet your life on something, bet it on someone who's living. See, Jesus defeated death, as John reminded us earlier, and he didn't come back as a ghost. This was no animatronic. When his disciples saw him, they were freaked out, as you'd imagine. And so what did Jesus do? He did something very unusual. He said, give me some fish. He ate some fish. He said to Thomas, who was really doubting, he said, look, put your fingers in the nail prints in my hands. What was he doing? He was saying, I'm not dead. I'm not a ghost. This is not an animatronic, heaven's latest kind of T2 Terminator come down, but a robot, a glorified. He wasn't. He's alive and living. So the real God is alive, but he's also life-giving. And this is what we're going to kind of wrap up with for the next few minutes. Creative gods rob us of life. And actually, they should come with a public health warning. People devote their lives to these gods at their peril. Let's carry on reading what Isaiah says. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. It's worshippers of other gods. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment, to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked half of it on coals. I roasted meat and have eaten meat and eaten. And shall I make the rest into an abomination? There's just no understanding. People who worship other gods, when we do that, we can't see what we're doing a lot of the time. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What's he doing? He's saying, created gods delude you. Created gods degrade you of of your humanity. We return to the image of Zach licking the carpet that we started with. When we worship things other than the creator God, we cannot see the foolishness of what we're doing a lot of the time. But they deludes us, degrades us. Now, and I speak as a Christian. I have decided that God is the God I'm going to build and bet on. But day in, day out, I'm often drawn to look to other things, money, sex, and power. This is what I need. If I make decisions to get these things, I'll be content. And I'm a Christian, and I still do that. This is not a Christian, non-Christian thing. This is a human thing. The human heart is an idol factory. It's what we do. It's part of the product of living on the earth that we do. The Bible says that he who loves money will never have money enough. You could equally say, he who loves sex will never have sex enough. He who loves power will never have power enough. You're always going to be chasing it. You're always going to be needing more, and you'll slowly be destroyed by it. 
Like how the ring works in Lord of the Rings. Even the purest of people, when they get this, it exposes their inner corruption. And they're craving after it. They long for it. It turns well-meaning hobbits into golems and smeagles. That's what idols do. When people say to me, oh, I'll give and I'll be generous when I have enough or when I can, I always think, you're never going to give. You're never going to, because you, your grip is on this. It doesn't matter how we give or what we give, but Jesus says again, where our treasure is, there our heart will be. People say, oh, oh, when, oh, I'll be home more when I get the promotion that I need, or oh, I'll, I'll change my life once I've achieved this thing that I, no, you won't. Or when he notices me, when she gives me the uh, respect that I deserve, then of course I won't live for that because I'll have it. No, you won't. You've turned it into something that you think you need. When life's less crazy, God will get my attention. Because things are so busy now, I can't think about God. I'm just trying to stay afloat. When life's less crazy, then God will get my No, he won't. No, he won't. Life's always crazy, for starts. The older you get, the crazier it gets. The older you get, the more heartache there is. The older you get, the more grief there is. You need to decide, I'm going to build on him, I'm going to bet on him. He's life-giving. And we know this, don't we? We know that pursuing beauty or sex that enslaves us as much as drug addiction, we still do it. In 2008, after the uh, global economic crisis began, uh, there followed a string of tragic suicides among some of the wealthiest people in the world. One man was found hung in his basement, another shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his Jaguar, and still another, uh, a HSBC senior officer, hung himself in the wardrobe of his 500 pound a night Knightsbridge suite because they'd lost money. Because of money. See, we, we bet on and we build on things for so long that we can't see the ridiculousness of it. If you were to stop and say, yeah, but it's, it's just money. Like this is what Isaiah does. He says, they feed on ashes. That thing that you worship, it's just ashes. That, that wooden idol, it's just ashes. You're eating ashes. But we don't see that, do we? Like, it's not about the money. It's about what the money gives me. That car is just bits and pieces. Or that person, I just need them to get... They're just DNA and molecules. They'll, just, they'll be shadows and dust one day. That have gone. A friend of mine, um, uh, she, when she was a teenager, she says she struggled with eating disorders of all kinds and uh, was just destroyed by personal self-image. And she came across a song that really helped her. And the lyrics of this are quite powerful. The, the song's essentially about someone else who's also struggling with self-image and beauty and uh, eating issues. And the song's about how she realized that the mirror that she looks to for her approval, it's just a piece of glass. It's nothing. And the lyrics of the song are this. She sings, I won't, you'll be relieved to know. Uh, Who are you that lies when you stare in my face, telling me that I'm just a trace of the person I once was? Because I just can't tell if you're telling the truth or a lie on you. I just can't rely. After all, you're just a piece of glass just a piece of glass. That's what Isaiah's looking to do. They're feeding on ashes. And he's speaking boldly because when you're living in that, when you're pursuing money, sex, and power, you need to be shocked out of it sometimes. Fake gods, career gods, mirror gods, money gods, sex gods, they rob you of life. There's only one God that doesn't. He's the living one. He's the one who is life-giving. 
We didn't have time to read this, but at the start of Isaiah 44, you'll have to believe me that it's there. It says, I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your children and my blessing on your descendants. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will write on their hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. The life-giving God refreshes us. The life-giving God owns us but not in a destructive way, in a way that makes us want to celebrate. I want to write, I belong to the Lord on my hand. And in that, I love that. It's beautiful because when he says they'll, they'll write on their hand the Lord's. Isaiah then, when we read in verse 20, he says, they can't tell that they have a lie in their right hand about people who worship idols. That He's using that image of hand in different ways. You can grasp an idol and you're grasping a lie in your hand or you can write on your hand the Lord's the life-giving one. I mean, imagine a group of Christians or imagine a church or a group, a society that were so committed to the real God and so looked to build our lives and bet our lives on Him that we were able to be honest. (laughs) Honest about our struggles. Honest about the things we wrestle with. Honest about our need for community and encouragement and provocation and challenge. We were honest Because we realized, I want to bet on him, but there's so many other things that kind of try to get me to pursue them. Imagine if if we made decisions based on the perspective of history that that video showed us. This is what I'm living for. Everything else serves that end. The job that I work, the kids that I raise, they're serving that end. He's the one who endures and always will be. And everything I do now goes to him. So when I, when I work, I'm honest in my dealings. When I'm in the staff room, I'm not gossiping like others. Why? Am I more moral than them? No. I'm just building on different things. Am I a better person than people? No. I want to be faithful to my wife. I want to have just one wife. I want to love her and honor her and lay my life down for her. I want to uh, not d- kind of annoy my children by being too demanding of them. Why? Because I'm a better person. I'm trying to be upright. In society. I don't care about being upright. I want to build well. I want to bet on the right things. I want to build on him and bet on him. Imagine what it would look like for you to bet your life on the reliable, enduring, alive and life-giving God. Now just as we finish, I'm going to give you some homework. Um, It's that time of the day. We're in a school. It feels appropriate. Uh, I want you in your homework now. Whenever you, I don't know, reach, go into the free, I I tell you what, first of all, identify in your own mind an area of uh, often weakness or temptation or stumbling where you go, I often go to this to give me what I think I should really go to God to get. Identify that in your mind. And I want you now to, to think and picture yourself in that scenario. When you go to pick up that beer from the fridge uh, or when you go to get that extra portion you don't need or when you go to tell that white lie that you think, I'm just going to say this so I can get a little bit of encouragement so that you'll love me a little bit more. Or when I look to put that extra layer of makeup on or take off that extra layer of clothing, you're going to realize and you're going to ask yourself this question. What am I betting on? What am I building on? When you pick it up, ask yourself, am I betting on this? Am I building on this to give me what I should be looking to God to do? And if it helps, write the Lord's on your hand. So when you pick something up, you go, ah, I'm the Lord's. I'm building and I'm betting on him. And one more for the Ukeen gardeners. If you have a marker pen, I was tempted to give everyone marker pens and boulders, but I decided against it. If you have a marker pen, if you don't go and buy one, find a big rock in your garden and write on it, 
God is the only rock that I know. So that you see these visual reminders and say, God is the only rock that I know. That big rock, that, that's representative of God. I'm going to build on him. I'm going to bet on him. Today, I'm tempted to think destructive thoughts about myself. I'm tempted to be hopeless. I'm tempted to entertain suicidal, hopeless ideas. But I'm going to build and I'm going to bet on him and what he says. I'm going to rewire the way I configure a lot of things. You get one life. Build it. Build things and bet on things that are worthwhile. Let me end by just reminding us of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, I've come to give you life. Life in all of its fullness. Life in all of its fullness doesn't mean an easy life. It doesn't mean a better life than our neighbors. It means life with eyes wide open, free from the destructive influence of idols and gods that we live for. And Jesus, as John reminded us, died and became a curse for us. Like a dead idol, he died on a piece of wood so that we could have life in his name. And in the New Testament, conversion, becoming a follower of Jesus, is described as turning from dead idols to serve the true and living God. And every day, as I'm a disciple of Jesus, or as you've seen something about Jesus and thought, okay, I'm going to try this, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to try and turn to the true and living God. It's an everyday following. It's not a one-off event. And it's something that we give ourselves to. I'm going to pray and then we're going to finish this morning by breaking bread um, and remembering Jesus' death on a cross in our place for our sin. And as we do this, we say, uh, often this is for those of us who are Christians, who are following Jesus. This is our way of picking up something tangibly, this bread, and saying, this bread's going to remind me of Jesus. This juice as I drink it is going to remind me of Jesus. I'm going to give thanks for what he's done. Father, thank you that you are the real God the one that's reliable, enduring, alive, and life-giving. Pray for us, God, that you would help us to be those who turn daily from serving dead gods to serve the true and living God. I thank you for this church. God, thank you for their partnership in the gospel. And I ask, God, that we would all of us know increasing levels of life from the life-giving God. Amen.